Encouraging. Three people were excited. All right, here we go. Um, yeah, uh, just not to go too long into this because uh, we need to dive into our sermon, but um, it is really, really encouraging to uh, be a church of our size, particularly where we started at, uh, and to be able to actually send and be the main supporters of a, a missionary couple to plant a church, like not just in Austin, that would be awesome, we want to do that too, but to plant a church in a whole other continent, right? Like that's a really, really cool thing. And so if you guys are a part of the well, you may not know this, but in many different ways, you really did help to make that possible. And that's part of why we exist collectively as a church, that we would be able to reach many people with the truth of the gospel. And so it's really, really encouraging. You guys should uh, take joy in that and also plan on doing a mission trip in Brazil at some point. So you can see Baba Martha and it's in Brazil, let's be honest, and that the gospel would go there, all right? Um, So I'm encouraged uh, to see what the Lord does with the Robins down there. Um, If you are new, we've been diving through the book of 1 Timothy, and that's our summer book. And so we're going to do that today. So let's go ahead and dive in. If you have your Bibles, you can grab them. Uh, Go over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll be at the tail end of that chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. Uh, Please feel free to take and to keep that. If you do not own a Bible, all right, we want you to have the word. And so please uh, keep that to be able to um, use throughout the week. You can also follow along on your smartphone. If you have the Uversion app underneath the events uh, tab, click on the Well Austin or type in the Well Austin and you'll be able to follow along that way. Uh, There's notes, places for scripture, all that stuff. You can also take this link right here and put it into your phone and you'll be able to follow along that way as well. Uh, I say this all the time and because we mean this. We want your eyes on the word, okay? So that you see that we're not just kind of throwing some things out here, kind of throwing some lofty ideas. Like we want you to see because we truly believe that God's word is God himself speaking to us to impact our lives in a very beautiful way. And so we want your eyes to be on the word and to be able to enjoy what he has to say to us today, which I'm excited about what he has to say to us today. And so whenever I get excited, I tend to preach long. So let's not talk and dive right in. All right. First Timothy, nobody laughed at that. That wasn't funny, was it? Don't worry. I'll get you out on time. All right. First Timothy chapter three. Here we go. Pick it up in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory." So a couple of things to start this section. Uh, Firstly, I want you to notice what it calls the church, okay? There are three distinct things that uh, uh, Paul laid out about the church. The first thing that he said is the church is the household of God. He said there the church is the household of God. So the church is God's family. We who are Christians are all brothers and sisters in Christ with the best daddy ever and the coolest big brother in the world. Amen? Right? Like, that's, that's what is true of us, okay? And so, like, think about what it is. And, and many of you, you guys have siblings, so you know. Like, think about what it means to have, like, a really, really great sibling. Uh, if you're a younger sibling, you've probably felt this even more so. And if you're an older sibling, there's a chance that you kind of played this role sometimes for your siblings. Like, for those of you who had good uh, uh, older brothers or older sisters, like, what did it feel like when they brought you into their uh, friend circle? Right? Like, you're younger, and they're older, they're in high school, your late elementary or middle school, whatever it may be, and you get to go hang out with their friends. 
Like, that feels kind of cool, right? Like, that feels kind of like, hey, this is exciting. Do y'all have, like, older siblings? Like, two people shook their head yes on that, all right? You have bad older siblings. We'll get to that too, right? Uh, or, like, if you were getting picked on, okay, maybe another example, and your sibling kind of came to your rescue and kind of helped defend you in some way, you probably felt uh, honored or protected or, or, or cared for. Uh, or maybe you had a dad that you just really, really admired. And you know how, like, when you're in elementary, you kind of uh, lie about your dad? or your mom and make them seem cooler than they are. Anybody else do that? All right, it's okay. We're in church. You can tell the truth, all right? You were lying then, right? So you're like, hey, my dad played for the Cowboys, right? Or my dad killed seven bears with his hand, you know? And some other kids like, my dad went to the moon, you know, et cetera. Uh, or maybe if you're like uh, the, the, the nerdy type, I mean, the, the techie type, right? My, my dad invented the internet, <laughs> right? And you did something like that, okay? Um, it felt good to be a part of a good family. The techie people laughed. All y'all thought I was being mean, but they thought it was funny. Don't worry, all right? Um, it felt good to be a part of a good family, right? Like if you have younger siblings and, uh, and you just uh, kind of abused them and mistreated them like I did to my younger siblings, you at least know what it's desired to have to have a good family. Like maybe you didn't experience it, all right? But maybe you desired to have that in some different way. For Christians, okay, we have that feeling multiplied by an innumerable number because Jesus is our older brother, this is a good truth, and God, the Father, the creator of all of the universe, he is our Father, and, and us as friends are the household of God, brothers and sisters together, one day to be perfect in him, that we may love each other and bring out the best of each other to the fullness, right? So for those of you who had uh, maybe terrible family relationships growing up, like we joked about that, but, but maybe you, you didn't have all your hopes or, 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 or your desires that you had to have as a family, I want you to know the beauty and the hope and the joy that the gospel brings to this situation. Like, I want you to think about what that means, okay? You have a perfect brother, Jesus. You have a perfect father, God the Father. And so listen to me, okay? You don't have to be bitter at your family for what they did or didn't do because even if they were the greatest family on earth, they can never give you what your heart actually desires, which is the perfect brother and the perfect father. And so you no longer have to be bitter at them or frustrated that they didn't do what they said that they would do or they broke promises or they were absent in your life. Because if you are a believer, friends, then you are entered into the household of God. Amen? Like, this is a good truth. We're not even to our gospel passage yet, right? Like, like, this is a beautiful thing that we get to see that God, when he invites us into his fold, invites us into a family, and we have something that our hearts desire. Friends, that's part of what we actually see in the church is collectively we encourage and remind each other and draw out that from each other that we may see the fullness of God. The church is the household of God, Paul says. The church is meant to be a special place. And I hope that in the best way possible, we as a church strive to be that, okay? Secondly, the church is the gathering of the living God, all right? The gathering of the living God. Um, John Stott, who is a, a theologian and a commentator, he said this about this verse. We are the temple of the living God, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. When the members of the congregation are scattered during most of the week, it is difficult to remain aware of this reality. But when we come together as the church of the living God, every aspect of our common life is enriched by the knowledge of his presence in our midst. 
In our worship, we bow down before the living God. Through the reading and exposition of his word, we hear his voice addressing us. We meet with him at his table where he makes himself known to us through the breaking of the bread. In our fellowship, we love one another as he has loved us. And our witness becomes bolder and more urgent. Indeed, seekers coming in may confess that God is really amongst you. When we gather as the household of God and as the, the family of God, we see something beautiful in that, okay? And then thirdly, the church is a pillar and a buttress, or that word just means foundation of truth, all right? A pillar and a foundation of truth. We, we already kind of talked about this in week one, so I'm not going to belabor this point. Paul once again alludes to it here in chapter four, which we're going to cover today. Later in chapter six, Paul talks about it again. But it's important that the church kind of holds the truth in a, a, a steady and make sure that we don't shift away from that truth. That's one of the, the goals, the, 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 the reasons why the church exists is that they may hold the truth and steady. So while the whole world, okay, kind of blows around and the different storms of truth that come in, I mean, just think about in your life, all the different truths that people said are actually true and they come untrue as your life goes on. I'm not even talking about scientific, though that's true too, right? But even just kind of philosophical truths that like, hey, this is how you find joy. Oh, wait, never mind. No, no, this is how you find, oh, wait, no, no, this is how you find joy. Hey, if you do these relationships, hey, if you do these things and it shifts and it blows all over the place and there's this storm of truth and we as Christians are meant to be like our Lord Jesus in the boat asleep amidst the storm because we know that we have a true anchor for our souls and that we have the truth to stand on. Right? And so this is important for us to see that the church is supposed to hold that. It's supposed to be the cabin in which we're able to come and rest and realize, man, this is what's actually true. When I hear these words spoken, they, they really do sound like the words of God to my life. It, it makes sense of my inconsistencies. And we're supposed to find great, great joy in that. The church is the protector and the exhorter of truth, the foundation of truth. Okay, So these are three examples of what Paul says the church is. All right? Now, there are tons of other uh, places in scripture that highlight the church as being different things. But Paul's saying, hey, look, the church is important. Okay. Now I have a question for us. And here's what I hope for today. I hope that today in our minds, we have a little bit of a paradigm shift in the way we think about a very, very important topic for us as a people. Okay. And so here's my question. All right. And you'll have to answer it out loud. In fact, please don't answer it out loud. Okay. Um, but I really do want you to answer it in your head. So genuinely think about this question. Okay. How do you become more godly? How do you become more godly? How, how do you grow in godliness? Maybe another way to ask that. What do you need to do to become a more godly person? All right. This may be a little bit awkward, but I literally want you to think about that. So I'm not talking for a few seconds. Okay. Think about, get, get some answers in your head. What do you need to do to become a more godly person? If you're like me and you can't remember 10 seconds, all right, maybe you write it down, okay? Bless you. <laughs> you thinking? I know this is awkward. Sermon's supposed to be preaching, right? But I want you to think, okay? What do you need to do to become a more godly person? Now, here's my thought. My thought is, 
Some of you didn't think at all, and that's okay. There's grace. We're in church, all right? Some of you guys, you need like 12 hours to think about a question, and that's okay, all right? We're not going to have that time today. But here's what I guess many of you were thinking of. My thought is many of you said things like, uh, go to church more. Right, or, or read my Bible more. If I, if I read my Bible more, that's what we'll do. Or, or maybe pray. Right? Or, or maybe give to the homeless more. If I, if I do more good deeds like to the homeless or people who are hurting. And listen, those are all good things. Right? None of those are bad things. They're all actually things that we would encourage you in. I'm sure none of you said, I need to tithe more. All right? But that's true too. Okay? <laughs> I'm just kidding. The guests were like, what? I'm, just kidding. Uh, I'm halfway kidding. Let me rephrase that. All right? Okay, now, look at, notice what Paul says, though, in verse 16. Okay, let's read verse 16 again. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Okay, stop, stop, stop. Don't read on, okay? I know it's on the screen. Don't look. Look at me, all right? Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. The mystery. What, what is this mystery, then, Paul? Right? Like, like, how is it that we grow in godliness? That's the question we're asking today. And so Paul says, look, here's the mystery of godliness. Because see, listen, all throughout the Old Testament, all of the saints were trying to figure out, how do I become a more godly person? What do I need to do to be in God's favor? How do I become more like Yahweh, more like God? How do I uh, 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 be accepted by his presence? And even today, even if we're not asking it in religious terms, we say things like, we really want the world to be a better place. And if the world was a more God-like place, it would seem to be better, right? Or, or maybe uh, I really want to make myself a better person. I, I want to be a better person, we may be saying. And so what is this mystery then, Paul says? Let's read it again. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. See the paradigm shift? Hope you guys had to uh, enjoy the sermon. Have a good day. No, I'm just kidding, right? Like, that's confusing, right? Like, what is he saying here? Okay, look at this. This is the mystery of godliness. He. He. Right? You see that word? Okay. Who is this? Who is the he that Paul is talking about? Good Sunday school answer. You are correct, all right? Jesus, right? Jesus came in the flesh, but he wasn't just a man. He was also a spirit. He always lived in harmony with the spirit. The Holy Spirit was dwelling in him ever since uh, 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 inception. And so here we go. This is Jesus in the flesh. He was seen, proclaimed, believed in, and taken up in glory. This is the message of the gospel, right? I was talking about that. In fact, what Paul's doing here is he's kind of quoting a New Testament hymn of sorts. They used to sing this song out here, here. All right, so, so what's the paradigm shift then? Well, many of us think that doing certain things is what makes us godly. If we read more, if we pray more, if we give more, then once we do those things, we'll be a more godly people. But friends, if this were the case, then what would separate Christians from every other religion in the whole entire world? right? I mean, think about that for a second. It, 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 every other religion says, hey, good works by being good or by doing good things, this is how you appease God, or this is how you find favor with God, or this is how you find joy in life. We'd be the same as every other religion in the world with a significantly weirder message, right? I mean, I'm not being blasphemous. Paul said, if Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead, then we are a people to be most pitied. People should look at us and go, oh, wow, 
Sad to be them. We should be most pitied, Paul said, because we have a weird message. We, we worship a dead and then resurrected Savior. And so if it is by good works only, if doing things is what brings about our, our justification or our sanctification, then we're no different than anything else in the world. How do you become more godly? Jesus or the gospel. As you look to, as you adore, as you see and worship and value and and treasure and honor and highlight, and as you make more and more of Jesus or of the gospel, then what begins to happen is godliness begins to be produced. Let's take an example that many of us probably said, right? Like, Like reading your Bible, okay? Let's use that as an example. Does reading the Bible in and of itself make you more godly? Okay, Atheists read the Bible, and they don't become more godly when they read the Bible. In fact, sometimes they become more bitter reading the Bible. Do they not? And so, what would then be the difference? If, if this is supposed to be some magic formula, like reading the Bible, then, then why read the Bible at all? Why should we as Christians highlight the Bible and think about it in such high terms? It's because of who the Bible points us to that we spend time looking at the Bible. Because if godliness is Jesus or is the gospel, then the more we see him in Scripture, the more we worship and adore him in Scripture, then the more our hearts begin to make that shift. In John chapter 5, verse 39, this is a great, great verse, right? And, and verse 42, I believe. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees who were really, really, really religious and really, really great people in terms of their good works. Like they really tried to keep all these works and they did and they did and they did. And Jesus said to them this shocking thing. He said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, not realizing it is they that point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So the Pharisees were studying the word far more than any of us. Matter of fact, one Pharisee would probably equal like 20 of our devotional lives. Right? They, that's what they did. That was their jobs. And they read and they read and they read, but they could not find life. They were not becoming more like God. Why? Because they were reading for the sake of reading. That was it. They were not seeing Jesus in this. Jesus said, the reason that you should be reading scripture is that it points you to me. Come to me that you may have life. Come to me that you may have joy. Come to me that you may be more like me. So why, why read the Bible then? Not just to check the box or not just because it's, you're supposed to, but it's because of who it points you to. Jesus, your Savior, your really, really cool older brother who didn't just beat up the bully for you at school, but he beat up the bully of sin and death for us and brought us into himself and calls us his own. This should allure and stir up affection in your hearts that Jesus is good and he loves you. He beat up the bully of sin and Satan, the father who loves us tremendously, who loves us so much that he did this scandalous, weird, crazy thing and gave up his son that you may be accepted. I wanna do something. This is gonna be really weird, it's okay. Welcome to the well, all right? If you're a guest, we love you, all right? Here's what I want you to say. Out loud, I want you to say, God loves me. Okay? So like three of you said it confidently. The rest of you kind of just said it, okay? Say it with confidence. Say, God loves me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that truth? This is why we do certain things that we may see this truth in its fullness. We read scripture to see the truth that God loves us. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. 
They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Where do we see that at? The Bible tells us that. So we don't read the Bible just to get some information or get some facts or try to, try to, try to uh, uh, prove Christianity through all these theories and means. That stuff is in there. It really is. But the main reason why we search this is that we see our Savior. Are y'all tracking with this? So I feel like I'm about to like super sand up in this joint. I like, right? Like this is, like this is, we need this truth, okay? Do you realize the release of burden that believing this would bring off of you? Do you realize this? The release of pressure that you put on yourself when you try to follow Christ. Like, okay, let's think about church too, since that's Paul's context. Paul's context here, he's talking about the church, right? As you go to church, like John Stott said a little bit ago, you see Jesus in all these ways, right? You see him in worship, you see him in communion, you see him in the word, etc. So you go to church that you may see Jesus more fully, which is why church is so important because it's the one time that we all collectively come together and get to point him out in all these different ways. And so when you serve, it may seem like a small thing, but you're actually representing Jesus, even if just in a small fragment to people, like this is an important thing for us to do. And so as you see Jesus in these ways and you begin to more deeply treasure and worship him, You go, man, maybe Jesus is real. Wow, maybe God really does love me. Wow, this word is really freeing. Wow, that song was really impactful. Wow, and all of a sudden, Jesus begins to explode to you. As you worship him, you begin to grow in all of him. And what does that do? It increases your faith. As your faith increases, you naturally grow in godliness because you're seeing and treasuring and valuing Christ more. As you grow in godliness, then naturally you will begin to produce good works. Good works are important because they're evidence of the affections that we have for Christ. But instead of trying to produce good works to prove that you're godly, which is what most of us do and what most of the people try to have us do, what if we actually fall in love with Jesus and with the gospel and realize who he is and allow that to produce the good works in our life? Wouldn't that be so freeing? To not feel like, wow, I didn't read my word in three days. Oh no, is God going to condemn me? Oh no, am I lesser of a Christian? Oh no, whatever our thoughts are, right? All of a sudden, when we realize that those things are not just disciplines because we have to do them, like checking off a box, but they're actually means of grace, a, a means by which we receive more of the grace of God, then as we begin to value and treasure that, we get to see him more clearly and you grow in godliness. Why? Because godliness is the gospel or godliness is Christ. That's what Paul is saying in this verse, right? Like plain reading says that this is the mystery of godliness. He, he is Jesus the gospel. Okay. Now we're literally going to sprint through this next part, but here's Paul's example as he goes on. Okay. Pick it up in verse four. Now the spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require uh, abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now there's a lot here that we can chop up, okay? But many people try to produce godliness by various means, right? So the spiritual or uh, maybe the religious, we'll call them for today's example, uh, they try to produce godliness by the, the abstinence, the abstaining from certain things, 
right? So no marriage, we'll say if you don't marry, that you're a more godly person, or no eating certain foods. That was Paul's day and age, okay? Bring it to our day and age. No movies, no certain music, no, no wine, no dancing, no caffeine. In fact, no fun. In fact, the, the less fun you have, the more godly you are. Some of you grew up like that, right? Like some of you are laughing, some of you are like, ooh, that kind of stung, because that's what we got taught growing up. Just, just, just be sterile and no fun, and the more you do that, then the more godly you actually are. And some of our hearts, listen to me, are bent on seeing Christianity like that even today, even post-gospel, even after we believe in Jesus by faith through grace, we say, yeah, I believe in Jesus by faith, but now let me work and work and work and work and work. So let me do these things. Let me do this. Let me do this. Let me do this. And that will produce godliness. That's not what scriptures say. And so the religious try to abstain from certain things, right? Paul says, hey, look, these people are trying to prove they're godly by, by giving up these things, and this is religion. However, we know the reverse is true too, right? Like, like there are others, that we'll call them the non-religious for our example today, all right, who, who say, yeah, you're right. You know what? No marriage. I'm going to sleep around with as many people as I can, right? Uh, 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 I'll eat everything I can and be a glutton. I'll, I'll watch whatever I want, not just movies, but even explicit material. I will do what I want. There will be nothing for me. So while one tries to abstain, and that's what kind of creates uh, godliness for them, the other one tries to overindulge, and that's their form of godliness. You say, how is that godliness? Well, they're just appeasing their God, which is themselves. The pleasure of self however I can make myself most happy, whatever gives me the most joy, then this is what I will do. That is the worship of self. That's making self God. And so both the religious and the non-religious, they try to uh, uh, attain this, this joy, this peace, this happiness, this hope in their own ways. The, the religious tries to do and do and do, or maybe don't do, right? Don't do these things, and, and that's what gives them joy. But, but so do the non-religious. You see it here, right? We see it even in other little ways. Keep reading, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith, and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So some people try to, uh, uh, for our example, take care of themselves to the extreme. Their, their bodies kind of become their God, and they, they do everything they can to, to make their bodies happy or make their bodies healthy. So all you vegans, stop tripping. All right, meat is good. I'm just kidding. In most cities, that would have only offended two people in here that offended 22 of y'all, all right? I'm totally joking, right? But there's a lot here in this text. We could break down a lot, but, but kind of tying it back to our idea of godliness. Christianity says, hey, look, no, neither of these is how you actually produce joy or godliness. In Christianity, there's actually freedom. There's this middle ground. We, we, uh, we don't give up everything to be a good person, and that's what makes us feel right or, or feel great pressure, right? We don't think that uh, 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 this is how we actually achieve God godliness by, by not doing and by doing certain things. Because often, if we're honest with ourselves, this is a lame and joyless life over here. The religious life is a lame and a joyless life. And listen to me, it's also a very burdensome life. And many of you feel that burden. You place this weight of the law on yourself that was supposed to be removed at the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
and you hold it over yourself and you try to carry this weight as if you are strong enough to do it, listen to me, no man or woman in human history has been strong enough to do it, minus one. Jesus fulfilled this for us. And so this is a lame, a joyless, and often uh, burdensome life when we say, hey, religion is how I produce godliness. The more I do or the more I don't do, this will make me more like God. This will make me more joyful. This will uh, 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 aid to my sanctification. But we don't also just uh, indulge on everything and, and chasing whatever the next high is and, and having more and more and more, more food, more wine, more whatever it may be. Right, So we don't do either extreme here. Christianity actually takes both of these views and magnifies them both to unreal extremes. It gives us such freedom. We say, yes, we do care about holiness because let's be honest, right? Like that's what over here is trying to produce is holiness, right? So we say, look, we do care about holiness. We, we do give up some freedoms and some liberties at times. We really do. And we, we understand that we cannot produce holiness in ourselves though. And so as we give these up, what we're doing in this is trying to find more of Jesus, trying to, to see him more, see, because holiness is not found in what we do or don't do, but holiness is found in a man. We are unholy people. God is a holy God. And in Jesus, we have his holiness. And so now we try to get behind Christ and, and walk how he walked. As he trailblazes the path ahead of us, we follow him in that. And so we don't give up things thinking this produces holiness, but rather we strive for Christ. And in that, we do achieve holiness, which actually sometimes means giving up certain things or doing certain things. At the same time, we really do care about joy and pleasure. Amen? Oh, shoot. All right. I'm going to have to change my sermon real quick. All right. We do care about joy and pleasure, amen? amen? This is a good thing. You don't have to be ashamed of that. And if you grew up thinking you have to be ashamed of that, then that's a false gospel that you need to throw in the trash. Because in Jesus, there is treasures and joys forevermore, right? Like we can be fully satisfied in Christ. And so we know that God made all things. And so we actually do enjoy wine or music or movies or dancing or fun or food or caffeine. Amen to that, right? Like we enjoy those things. However, we do not overindulge on any of these because we're not addicted to them. Because every single one of those things we can give up in a heartbeat because we believe that our true joy is found in a person, in Jesus. And so we'll even give them up for the sake of other people that we may have more of him. And so we do enjoy uh, uh, joy and, 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 and fun, right? But we also enjoy holiness. And there's these two extremes here. We, we care about the body thinking it's the temple of the living God, right? We, we take care of ourselves in those ways, but we also find great freedom in Christ. Christianity brings freedom to both. It frees us from being enslaved to religion, and it frees us from being enslaved to the God of ourselves, to overindulgence. Let's finish our text here. Last two verses. Verse nine. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. A good phrase there, okay, because that's confusing for some, is that who offers salvation to all people, especially those who receive it would be a better way of saying that. So salvation is offered to all people, but it especially applies to those who accept Christ. That's what that verse is saying, okay? 
So religious people, they try to produce godliness or earn their salvation by what they do and don't do. Non-religious people try to earn uh, their godliness or their salvation also by what they do or don't do, by expressing their liberties or freedom. Both are I do. I keep saying that phrase, and I want to hit this. I know I've said this like 15 times. I'm doing something on purpose, right? Like I do, I do, or I don't do, I don't do. All of it is the me monster. Christianity says... We actually find our holiness and our joy. We find both of these sides, not in what I do, but in what he did. We find it in Jesus, who is that for us. So when I ask you the question, how do you become more godly? I bet 99% of you were thinking, I do. Here's what I need to do. Here's what I have to do to become more godly. I have to do this or not do this or give this up or, you know what, I don't really care about that stuff, so I'm just going to go do what I want to do. I'm going to go on this side of the fence and whatever side we may be on. However, Christ takes both of these things and blows them both out the water. Why? Because he is the Lord of the feast. He is the Lord of the festival. He is the Lord of the wine, John 2 tells us. He is the Lord of the harvest. He is true joy. He is what joy is. At the same time, he is the God of holiness. He is the God of of justice. He is perfection. There is no sin found in God, in Jesus. He is perfect. And so it takes both of these extremes as we try to work up to them and it magnifies them or blows them both out the water. In Christ, we have what we're trying to produce over here and we have what we're trying to produce over here and we get it without burden. Y'all tracking with that? I'm about to like, man, okay. In Christ, we have what our hearts desire and what they're looking for. We keep trying to produce it on these two sides. Do you know how far short we're falling? How much we're deceiving ourselves? We can't be good enough and we can't produce enough joy to satisfy our hearts because our hearts are made for infinite joy found in Christ. And our hearts are made for perfection, which all of us broke this morning, which all of us broke at some point in this sermon, (laughs) right? We cannot be perfect. In Jesus, we have both of these things. So Paul says at the very end here that we want to uh, toil or strive or even work out, he says in verse eight, work out your godliness would be a good way or or train yourself, right? And what does that mean? This week, uh, I have a unfortunate confession, all right? This week I worked out for the first time in almost 10 months, all right? Now, most of you Austinites, there we go, all right? Are y'all like, okay, I'm not even gonna get that, all right, right? Like first time, okay, now, let me mind you, I was playing basketball and stuff like that, but like actually lifting weights, I didn't do since last August, okay? So I, like a fool, decided to go right back into what I was doing last August, and I started trying to lift that, all right? Now, some of them I could actually kind of do, I think, from throwing around a little two-year-old all over the place that kept me a little bit in shape, right? But some of it was really, really, really hard. Unfortunately, one of the members in this church came into the gym while I was working out. And this person was a beast. I mean, rocking it, right? So I felt like, man, I got to be a beast too. I can't be like a wimp up here, right? So I started trying to push myself and push myself, and I ruined myself, all right? My triceps hurt so bad that I was not able to move my arm past this, okay? So earlier in the week, I met with a guy on Wednesday morning, and we're sitting down, we're talking, we're at Chick-fil-A, and about halfway through the conversation, I get a, a itch on the back of my neck, and I can't move my hand past this, okay? So I start looking at him, and I'm thinking, how in the world am I going to scratch my neck, all right? Like, am I going to ask him, can you scratch my neck for me? Because that sounds real awkward, and it looks even more awkward, right? 
And so I'm like, listen to him for about a minute and a half. I have no idea what that man said. Sorry, okay, you're in here, all right? No idea what he said, because I was trying to think, how do I itch my neck? And so finally, I was just kind of like, and trying to act like I was like rolling my neck, stretching, you know, right? Like I was ruined, okay? Some of us haven't worked out our spiritual life in 10 months. And then when we're hurting or when we're burdened, we wonder what's wrong. Right? Isn't that true? Like Paul says, look, bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way. So let's use that workout analogy. Work out godliness. That's what Paul is telling us to do here. You have to work it out. Now you may be thinking, wait a minute. Didn't you just say it's not what I do and don't do? Right? So, so how do you actually marry these two things? You're right. It's not what you do and don't you. Don't you see the beautiful mystery here, why Paul calls it a mystery? Don't you see the dichotomy? This is where I want our brains to do a, a small paradigm shift here. Right? Work out. Toil. Strive. Do what you have to do to find more of God. However, you don't do it like the Pharisees who are just trying to produce their own godliness over and over and over again, you recognize the importance of your relationship with Jesus. See, once you realize that Christ is godliness, the gospel is what godliness is, that he is your treasure, that he is your joy, that he is your hope, that he is your reward, as soon as you see that and you start chasing and pursuing and trying to fall more and more in love with Jesus, as you value and you treasure and you make more of him, then sure enough, you will produce godliness. That's you working out. You're working out your godliness. Not like the Pharisee, though, who just tries to do and do and do and find himself godly before God. You're falling in love. You're entering into that covenant relationship that we talk about. See, we all like to say Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. There's truth behind that. It is a relationship, but we act like it's a religion. As we start chasing after Jesus more and more, as we realize it's actually a relationship, then the more that we do, we realize that, look, we're not trying to do this to produce our own holiness. He is holiness for us. See, so it's not like we're just passive, like we just kind of wait around on God to change our hearts, like, here I am, God, change me, because that's how some of us act, right? do something in my heart. No, we actually go for it. We, we work out in some way, but we also don't think that our doing is what actually gives us godliness. We realize that it comes for Christ. How do we live in both of these worlds at the same time then? Jesus, who's 100% man and 100% God, who lives in both of those worlds for us. As we fall more in love with him, this happens naturally. He starts changing us. What you can actually do, and I would encourage you to do this, as you read your Bible, you can take that word godliness and replace it with the word Christ or the gospel every single time you see it. Paul did not do this on accident. He used this word once before this section. Since writing this section, he used the word 17 other times. Nine times here in 1 Timothy, which we'll see over and over again. Since 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. In 2 Timothy and Titus, he uses it, which he wrote afterwards. This word is used once before 1 Timothy 3, 16. Why? Because he's trying to get us to see where godliness comes from, which is Christ. In fact, let's do it. Look again at uh, chapter 4, verse 8, or verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for the gospel. 
For while bodily training is of some value, the gospel is of value in every way as it holds promise to the present life and also the life to come. See, if we think about uh, 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 godliness as our works, hey, our works, all the things we do, that holds promise. No, that's not true. And we know that's not true because it crumbles even while we're doing it. But if it's the gospel, if that's what actually produces in us holiness, if it actually makes us more like Christ, if it's the gospel, then we know that it holds present, or promise for the present life and also the life to come. We have the freedom that we desire. Only in Christ do you get both sides of the thing, which is what your heart desperately longs for. And so for some of you, you've been trying to do it on your own. Maybe you're on this side, the overindulgent side. Maybe you're on the religious side and you've been trying to do it and trying to do it. You've been trying to do what your heart desires, what it craves. You haven't placed your trust in Jesus. You haven't entered into this covenant relationship with the Lord who loves you. Maybe you even said that phrase earlier but didn't believe it in your heart. Do you know how much Jesus loves you, his affections for you? Man, release that burden off of yourself. Stop. Stop trying. Come to Jesus. Submit to him. Make him the Lord of your life. Make him the ruler, the king. See, as we enter into this relationship, which is by faith, we just say, Jesus, I believe in you. I want to follow you. You may not have all the answers. Guess what? You're never going to have all the answers because God is inexhaustible. Even in heaven, you will be learning more and more and more and more about who he is. But this is the one thing that we need to know. Where are you with Jesus? And how are you trying to produce this godliness or this righteousness? Man, enter into that covenant relationship with him. He's here for you. He wants you to know him. Stop trying. Stop going over here or over here. Man, submit your life to Jesus who did it all for you. And for those of us who do believe, work out your belief. (laughs) Work out, right? Like, don't wait 10 months to go lift and then be sore and mad and frustrated and being like, God, what the heck are you doing? That's us, right? Work out. But don't be like the Pharisees trying to produce this. Don't think you're better than me or than them because you read your Bible more. That's called legalism. And that's a sure sign that you're trying to find your holiness or your godliness in what you do or don't do. Our righteousness is found in Christ. The gospel both saves us or justifies us, to use a theological word, and it also sanctifies us or makes us more like him. You don't come to God by faith and then do the works the rest of your life, and that's how you grow. You come to God by faith, you stay in faith, and as you grow in faith, works naturally produce out of that. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who's put a spell on you? Is what you started with faith being perfected by works? And then he uses probably an equivalent to a cuss word, no. He's being as adamant as he can. Don't think that your faith that started so beautifully is perfected by your doing. Find and treasure and value Jesus, friends. And as you do that, you'll find what your heart desires. Scripture, all of Scripture lays this out. Okay, I hope that made sense. To be honest, I feel like it wasn't making full sense. I want you guys to know and to value and to treasure, to love, to trust Jesus. That's what this book points us to, is our beautiful friend and our beautiful Savior. I love you guys. Let's pray.
God, you are good to us.